be in your Bible to the book of Judges, and we are in Judges chapter 2. We left off in verse 6. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can open up your word this morning. Lord, we don't take it for granted that you love us and you've communicated your word to us. We pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that our heart and life would be fertile soil. And as we do have patterns and cycles and circles that we go through in our lives, God, would you cause us to be on the right path and the path of righteousness? Would you set the captives free? Would you be glorified? We do thank you for your promise that it's not by power or by might, but by your spirit. So may your spirit have his way in our time. Lord, there's nothing that can replace your presence. And we need your nearness. We need your presence right now. So would you make your presence manifest? In Jesus' name, amen. You probably have patterns in your week that cause you to have this statement. I've been here before. For us, it's grocery shopping and laundry. We tend to go to the same two or three stores every week. You guessed it. One of those is Costco. With a family of six, you can't beat it. And when you're on that route to Costco, my wife and I often turn to each other and it says, I feel like I've been here before. When you're folding that laundry and you're folding that laundry and you fold that laundry, you have that feeling of, I have been here before. And for the children of Israel, that's definitely true. We're going to read through this paragraph, this section this morning, and we're going to see a downward spiral, this circle that just continues happening and continues happening for 450 years. That's the period of the judges. All the way from Joshua to Samuel, we'll see them do this circle that we're going to cover this morning. And the challenge for us is to break the pattern, break the pattern. If you see this cycle or this circle in your life where you're always going back to some sinful things and it just goes like this, God's heart this morning is to set the captives free. I think our lives are either going in a downward spiral or in an upward spiral. And that's the gospel. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to redeem our lives, to put us on the path of righteousness where there's a circle, a pattern that's edifying and life-giving instead of filled with destruction. So let's begin our journey in verse 6 of chapter 2. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. God had given the overall victory to the children of Israel But then each particular tribe had to enter into their inheritance to do the mop-up operation. Jesus and his death and resurrection has given us the victory, but then we have to appropriate it by faith. We have to walk into the promises of God. We need to inherit our inheritance. Verse 7, it gives the commentary on Joshua's generation. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The next generation, they served as long as Joshua and the other elders were alive. But we'll find as soon as Joshua's off the scene, the elders are off the scene, then they stop following the Lord. They never made it personal. Maybe you can relate. You're growing up in a Christian home move out of the house, go off to college, and forsake your faith. 
Maybe this morning you're in a place where you really haven't decided to follow Jesus Christ. You're here to make your spouse happy. I mean, let's be honest. You get living hell if you don't come to church. So you're like, I'm going to endure the hour and 15 minutes of pain. And I've learned how to sneak upstairs and get an Americano right before church. And I just kind of slip in during the last song and sit through, through the message. And I'm doing my deal on my phone. And my spouse is happy. And so everything's good, right? We come for a variety of different reasons, and sometimes we even, quote-unquote, follow the Lord just because of that pressure from a Joshua-type figure or the elders in our, in our life. I can really relate to this. I was born and raised in a Christian family, and now I'm very thankful for it. I was born on a Sunday, and the next Sunday I was in church. My parents were the first ones to receive Christ from either side of the family. So my grandparents, aunts and uncles, no one was a Christian. So Christ was everything in our home. But for me, being around it didn't necessarily result in a relationship with God. I served the Lord, I followed the Lord out of that sense of obligation, but it wasn't until I was in high school that I made it personal and I made it my own. And so we see that commentary here in verse 7. And then we see that Joshua and his generation, they did serve the Lord because they had seen the works of God. They'd seen the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. They had experienced the power of God in their life. So if you're taking notes, this is the first stop on the circle. If you just think of a circle, the top of the circle, write service. Write it down because this next generation did have a period where they served the Lord. Joshua and his generation, they served the Lord. I think that this is really important when it comes to making it personal and having a personal relationship with God is not just reading about God's works, as wonderful as that is, and not just hearing about God's works in the lives of your parents, in the lives of your friends, but experiencing God's work in your own life. Isn't there a huge difference and Joshua and Caleb and the elders, they had experienced the work of God. They'd seen God bring them into the promised land. As the weather gets hot, you could be at a pool party and you could believe in the pool. You could appreciate the pool. You could talk up the pool. But if you don't ever get in the pool, you're not going to experience the refreshment. And it's the same way with Christ. You can appreciate Christ. You can believe in Christ. You can talk up Christ. But until you get into Christ and begin to experiencing him working. How did they experience the works of God? Maybe it's kind of a conundrum or a mystery of, I want to see God work. They believed the word of God, and they took actions according to what God says. And the same for us. When we get into God's word, and we see what God has said and his promises, and then we start to take actions in accordance to it, we will experience his work. And we experience his work a lot of times that causes us to come into that genuine faith. So we do see a brief period of serving the Lord. In verse 8, now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. That's a good old ripe age, isn't it? 110 years old. I'm not sure I want to live that long, but this is great for Joshua. He's 110 years old, and God gives him the title, the epitaph of the servant of the Lord. That's a great compliment, isn't it? Life is summed up in this. The meaning of life is found in serving God. 
seeing his goodness, his grace, and his kindness, and we yield our life to him, we give control over to him. He's the servant of the Lord. He's in eternity. Verse 9. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance, timnath Herez, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh. He died in the promised land. His whole generation died in the wilderness because of unbelief. Joshua and Caleb got to experience the promises of God. He's buried in Israel, which is significant. In verse 10 When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who didn't know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Generations really do pass quickly. I've been here at RMC now for 14 years, and as my two daughters went to kids camp this week, there were some kids that were counselors that I knew when they were knee-high to a grasshopper. I knew them when they were snot-nosed kids. And now they're taking care of my snot-nosed kids. I'm like, well, how in the world did this happen? This, this happened so quickly. Hannah, when she's 10 years old, she'll be 11 in October. And she has grown up in this children's wing down the, the hall here. If you've never walked down there, you need to. Because the most happening part of our church is not in here. We're extremely boring. The, the happening part of the church is down the hall here. I mean... Things are changing, including diapers down the hall, you know. So I remember her being an infant and putting her into the nursery going, I hope these people know what they're doing because they've got my daughter, right? Now she's going into fifth grade and she's in her last year in our children's ministry and it's just blowing my mind. It's happening a lot quicker than I anticipated. I'm beginning to look in the mirror and there's this weird color that's coming in. It's called, it's called gray, and it's due to four kids and pastoring, and pastoring as well. It's happening. And I'm beginning to look at you guys, and you guys aren't getting any younger, and you're looking at me, and I'm not getting any younger. And a generation's happening, and it's happening really quickly, and, and it passes. And all of a sudden, Joshua and Caleb and that generation, they're gone. The elders are, are gone. And here rises this new generation, and what is said about them is that They didn't know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Isn't that heartbreaking? They grew up around the things of God, but yet they didn't have a personal relationship with God. Something's missing here. And it's probably missing on both ends. It's probably missing on Joshua and Caleb and the the elders and how they passed it to the next generation but it also is probably on this younger generation and not being willing to receive, not being willing to learn and have a teachable heart. So here's a mission for us if you are a parent. And I think it's the mission for the church, even if you're not a parent, is we want to pray that the next generation, the generation growing up in our church and growing up in our community, growing up in our country and our world, would know the Lord. It's a heartbeat of mine. I desperately want to see the next generation reached for Jesus Christ. So we want to declare to our kids, to our grandkids. We also want to declare to young people, whether they're your biological family or not, the works of God. Share with them what God has done in your life. And sometimes, even growing up in a Christian family, we may not take the time to share God's story with our kids. This is what my life was like before Christ. This is how Christ invaded my life. Here's a season where I made some terrible choices and God met me in a, in a radical way. 
the reason I'm so concerned about this in your life is because I really made some bad, bad decisions. Share God's story in the past, but also currently. Maybe finances are really difficult, and you're praying that God will provide the clothes for the kids. As it's summertime and they need some new clothes and you're praying for that, you're praying how you're going to pay your rent and how you're going to get groceries and God provides, tell the kids. This is amazing. Look at what God has, has provided for us. They need to know the works of God. Also, I think we need to give our kids and this next generation an opportunity to experience God's work. One of the most wonderful things for young people to do is go on a missions trip. We've got 10 high schoolers that are headed out on Monday to go down to Chihuahua. Be praying for them because many times as you step out and you serve, you see God work. A missions trip is a great way to do that, but serving the neighbors is a great way to do that. Serving people inside of their school, but saying, I'm going to take a step of faith that's in line with God's work. But I know this, I needed my own story. I needed to see God defeat giants in my own life, and I know my kids are going to need their own story. So we need to pray for that in the lives of the next generation, that they would see God work. Because in seeing God work, then they know the Lord and they know the reality of God. We go on to verse 11, and it's the next stop in the circle, and it's sin. It goes from service to sin. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals the children of Israel. This isn't the unbelievers. This isn't the Canaanites. This isn't those that never had a relationship with the one true living God. This is God's people. They did evil in God's sight. God is seeing the evil that they do. This is a natural result of not knowing the Lord. If we don't know him, we don't know his works, we don't know what he's done, then we're going to go to this place of sin very quickly. When we look at our country, our society, our, our culture, we even look inside of the church, inside of the body of Christ, you know what the real problem is? Not knowing the Lord, not having the knowledge of God, not having the fear of Him, because it's a quick step from not knowing Him to sin, isn't it? When He's not in our lives, we very quickly get to this place, and they enter into serving idols, trading in, the one true living God to serve idols. Psalms 115 gives us commentary on this. I'll read it to you. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. When God's people forsake the Lord to serve idols, what a terrible downgrade. Here these idols can't speak, they can't hear, they can't save, yet God can save. Notice what it says at the end of Psalms 115 here, that you become like what you trust in. If you trust in the one true living God, you worship him, you're going to become like what you worship. Be very careful with what you choose to worship. In verse 12, describing their sin, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers. They abandoned the Lord God of their fathers. 
I think of it like fourth period French in school, French class, right? Remember in high school and college, you have the first two weeks where you can drop a class, you can decide, I don't want this class. I was like, forget fourth period French. This is terrible. I'm, I'm out of here. No thanks. The only thing I remember from French class is ferme la bouche, which is shut your mouth. So that gives you <laughs> an indicator of what kind of student I was in French class. But that's the idea. I'm just going to forsake this. this I'm going to abandon this. So a relationship with God is not something that I value, not something that I see as important or benefits my life. And it's the God of their fathers, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham. I already said Abraham. <laughs> the God of Joseph. We're just done with it. We're going to forsake it. And as they forsake it, then what do they do? They pursue, they follow after the gods among the people. God had said, go in and destroy these people groups because of their gross idolatry that they chose to compromise. Now instead of destroying them, they adopt their gods, which is interesting because God has already defeated these people. In the book of Joshua, he's defeated these gods, but yet they want their gods. And they bow down before them, and the Lord's provoked to anger. The response that God has is out of godly jealousy. It moves God's heart to see how they forsook the Lord. In verse 13, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreths. This will come up throughout the Old Testament. If you're reading through the scriptures, which I hope that you are, you're going to see Baal, you're going to see Ashtoreths. So, so what is Baal? Baal means Lord. That's what the, the name means. And it was the God of rain. So they would bow down to Baal. It was a Canaanite God thinking that if we submit our lives to Baal, then we're going to have rain and experience personal wealth. We tend to look down on people groups that have idols and think that somehow we're too sophisticated for, for idols in our generation and in our culture. I got to tell you, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Idolatry is alive and well. It's never been more popular. Because you have to understand there was an ideology and a way of thinking that came along with these idols and we really bow down to philosophies and ideologies as well. And we may not have the statue that we're bowing down to, but we're submitting our lives to the exact same thing. We've titled this series, I Rule, because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And it causes us to see the importance of not being selfish and ruling our lives, but being surrendered to Jesus Christ. Do you think that one of the gods that people bow down today is personal wealth? If I do this and I do that, then it's going to give me the guarantee of more personal wealth. And that's what drives our lives without any thought of God or what God would have for us. Just what's in it for me and how much more money can I receive? We know that they would even sacrifice their children to Baal. They would kill, they would murder their children in order to think to appease this God to bring about more rain, to bring about more personal wealth. As a culture and a society, do we sacrifice our children for more personal wealth? Absolutely. It's very common to not be involved in our kids' lives at all simply to have more money. At some point, we have to stop and evaluate and go, is all the stuff more valuable than having some time with my kids? Obviously, we have to provide. Obviously, we've got to meet the bills. 
But do we stop and go, you know, I need to factor this in. What am I really sacrificing for wealth and for more money? Oftentimes, we'll put up our relationship with God to have more personal wealth. Nothing's wrong with money. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. The next is Ashtoreth. And Ashtoreth was really the sister of Baal, the cohort of Baal. And she was the fertility goddess. I think I saw her this morning on a Starbucks cup. I don't know. Maybe. No, I'm just joking. Who is that lady on the Starbucks cup anyway? They changed the name of Starbucks. Did you realize that? It's now five bucks because every time you go, you spend five bucks. She's the fertility goddess. I'm in a strange mood this morning. You're going to have to bear with me. (laughs) And this got into real gross sexual perversion. They would come and have relations with temple prostitutes to appease this god. And in thinking and doing this, then she would bless women with fertility. Have we been given over to sensuality? Absolutely. We see Baal and we see Ashtaroth. Personal wealth and sensuality, sex outside of God's design for personal fulfillment, it's alive and well. When you see somebody, you know, put up the Playboy image on their vehicle, you realize they're bowing down to Ashtaroth. That's what rules their life. They're so proud of it, they want everybody to know. They're a bigger fan of sexual sin than even the Denver Broncos. And so I'm going to let everybody know this as I drive down, down the road. So I think this begins to hit home a lot closer of why they forsook the Lord and what these idols represented. In verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. The next stop on this downward spiral is slavery. Slavery. God turns them over to their enemies, and yes, they indeed did become slaves. Forced labor, mistreated, abused, all of those things that come with slavery. It was a result, it was a consequence of forsaking the Lord. And when we consider this in our own lives, a lot of times we want to put sin under control, like the children of Israel tried to put these nations under their control. When God says, destroy them completely, and we have to deal with sin completely in our lives through the cross of Jesus Christ, reckoning our old man to be dead. If we kind of become casual with sin and think, well, I'll just kind of keep this under control, eventually that sin is going to control us. And God will confirm our decision and allow us to become in bondage to that sin so that we'll get to a breaking point. It's not that God is some kind of mean God. It's actually out of his love for us that he says, I'm going to allow you to experience the consequence of your choices so that you'll cry out to me and desire deliverance. How many of us came to know Christ as our Savior because of bondage of our choices? We got to the end of it and we're like, this, this is terrible. I don't want to stay in this place. Could anybody forgive me? Could anybody save me? Could anybody transform me? And we hear of the love of Jesus Christ and it's the brokenness and the emptiness that causes us to respond to Christ. Thankfully, even as believers, when we wander from the Lord, 
when we get to this, this place, God allows us to go to a place of bondage. There's no satisfaction in the life of sin. There's no satisfaction in these idols. There's no satisfaction when wealth is your God. There's no satisfaction when, when sex is your God. And then there's bondage. And it causes us to cry, cry out to the Lord. So the Lord, out of his love, put them into this place of slavery. Worship of Christ is the upward spiral to freedom. It's what brings us in that right direction of life. But worship of self is this downward spiral of bondage. So verse 15, whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had shown to them, and they were greatly distressed. God actually opposes them in their disobedience. Now, please stay with me. There's sometimes, as I'm teaching the word, if you kind of zone out, which is easy to do, you could walk away with the complete wrong idea, and I don't want anyone to do that this morning. First is, is if there is calamity in your life everywhere that you turn, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're in rebellion to God. How do we know that? Because of Job. Job was walking with the Lord and God allowed for him to be tested. So calamity could mean that you're in the exact place that God wants you to be and God's allowing trial. But there's also places like this in scripture where the calamity is coming because someone is in rebellion to God and God's trying to get their attention. You know who you are. You know if you're right with the Lord. You know if you're walking with him. You're not perfect, but your heart's for the Lord. You're trying to please him, but you also know if you're in rebellion to God as the child of God. It's the worst place to be, isn't it? And God's hand is heavy upon you this morning. And everywhere you turn, nothing can work out. And you think it's your boss, you think it's your spouse, you think it's your kids, you think it's your landlord, you think it's your car, your stinking car, and you've been kicking the tires and cursing the tires, and no, it's the hand of God. God's trying to get your attention Instead of getting mad at your circumstance and mad at the calamity, turn to the Lord. This is the next stop on our circle, and it's supplication. Write down supplication, because as we look this morning, and we'll see throughout the book of Judges, this circle goes on throughout the book of Judges, is when they came to slavery and distress, then they cried out to God. They begged that God would deliver them from these nations, that God would bring them out of their, their bondage. Verse 16, it's an important verse. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Wow, God is gracious. God is kind and God is good. Does it over and over again. They cry out to the Lord. And there's a certain part of you that you think God would just go, I told you so. I told you so. You need to stay in bondage. But God's like, oh, I've got compassion, I've got pity upon you. And out of his grace, he then raises up a deliverer, a judge, to bring about victory. Maybe you're wondering if you've gone too far. You've just repeated the cycle and the circle too many times, and God can't forgive you, God can't deliver you. He'll absolutely respond if you cry out in supplication, say, Lord, would you take this from me? And hopefully... You're repenting to be in right relationship with God, not just to get out of the pickle, not just to get out of the consequence. Because as we read in verse 17, there's no heart change with the children of Israel. Then they would not listen to their judges. So they got out of the place of bondage, and then they decided we're not going to respond to God's message. 
but they played the harlot with other gods. Does your, your Bible say harlot? Or maybe it says prostitute, or maybe it says whore. It's pretty serious, isn't it? That's how God sees it. He says they're playing the harlot with other gods. When they were going out and worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth, God's not like going, man, I'm so pleased that you're a person of faith. <laughs> it's so wonderful that you believe in Baal and you believe in Ashtaroth and you believe in me. And I'll be just one of the members with them. And as long as you have faith, you're going to be all right. No, that's absolute heresy. God's like, you're a stinking harlot. You're a prostitute right now. You're going out and you're prostituting yourself. You're cheating on me. That's the idea here. It's just like a spouse who commits adultery. They're committing adultery against God. And bowed down to them, they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commands of the Lord. They did not do so. They wanted out of the consequences, but they didn't want to get right with God. Hopefully the kindness of God leads us to repentance when we cry out to God because we've gotten ourselves in a difficult situation and God delivers, then we go, oh, Lord, you're so gracious, you're so kind. I want to serve you. I want to listen to you. Verse 18, and the Lord raised up, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. The compassion and the kindness of God is so deep and so vast. Even though they're delivered, and they didn't listen, and they continued in this wickedness, generation after generation after generation, God each time responded to their pleas and would raise up a judge. Why? Because he had compassion. That's what this word pity means. He had kindness towards them. His kindness and compassion was greater than their rebellion. In verse 19, and it came to pass when the judge was dead and they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They didn't cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. It's scary to see that none of this led to repentance in their life, that their stubbornness was so strong in their hearts and in their lives. Verse 20, then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and not, has not heeded my voice. If you've been paying attention, maybe you noticed this morning, this was the third time that we see God's anger. And this time it says that he was hot against the nation of Israel. He was ticked off. He was furious. He'd had enough. One of the things that I think we don't dwell on enough is the emotion of God. We tend to take God and just put him in this emotional state that he never feels anything. But we're made in God's image and we're filled with emotion. And many times our anger is evil, isn't it? And we sin in our anger. But there is a righteous aspect to anger. And it's right for a husband, for a wife to be angry if their spouse cheats on them. I think we can understand that. We can see that that's an appropriate level of anger. Now what they do with that anger could be another thing. But being angry in that situation is not wrong. 
And here God is moved with emotion. He's a loving father. He's a faithful husband. And he's saying, where are you? You haven't listened to my voice. You threw my covenant, my commitment to you in the trash. I desire relationship with you. How does this apply to us? When we sin and we walk in rebellion to God, there's a father who grieves. There's a father who gets angry. There's a father that's going, hey, what's the deal here? I want your heart. I don't get angry with someone that I don't care about. You know? I don't have any emotion for, for someone that I don't care about. You know, if you're doing something really stupid and you come into my office and I don't show any emotion or concern, that means that I'm not caring for you. And I'm not justifying getting angry and losing my temper, but if I'm moved to emotion and I handle those emotions in an appropriate way, then that means I really care. And my, my kids move me because I love them and I, and, I, and I care for them, and God is moved here. And this also helps us understand how much the cross of Jesus Christ means to us. When we sang this morning that Jesus paid it all, we would be under God's wrath if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. There wouldn't be anything standing between us and the Father, and it's because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus took all of the wrath of the Father, the just wrath of the Father, so that I could experience forgiveness. So please don't look at verse 20 as some negative thing. Don't put your judgment upon God. Don't go, well, how could God get angry? This is a loving father that's showing the appropriate level of anger over the disobedience of the children of Israel. Verse 21, and I also, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. The fruit of their actions is God confirms their decision. God gives them what they wanted. You want these nations, you want these gods, now I'm not going to deliver them from you. They're going to be a test to see if you'll love and serve God. As we close this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to one, maybe you've been around church and you've come to church possibly your whole life, a few months or a few years, but church is not something that's new for you. But in your heart, you know that you don't know the Lord. You absolutely know it. You've never surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 tells us that salvation comes when we confess with the mouth and believe in the heart that Jesus has risen from the dead, asking him to be the Lord of my life. So you can confess it. You can say the words, but you know that you've never believed in your heart. You're like this judge's generation. You have a godly parent, you've got a godly spouse, you have some godly friends, but you've never caught it for yourself. And I want you to think for just a moment, all these years that you've heard the gospel, all those times where you've said, I'm not interested for one reason or another, God has loved you and he's wanted everything to do with you. And this morning, I'm gonna ask in just a moment that you would raise your hand and you're not raising your hand to me, you're raising your hand to Jesus Christ saying, Jesus, would you forgive me? And would you be the Lord of my life? 
I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. And then also, if you are the child of God and you have trusted in Christ for salvation, but you've walked away, I mean, you full on walked away. And when it comes to Baal and Ashtaroth, you've got it down. You've got the worship of Baal, the worship of personal wealth, the worship of sensuality, you've got it. You know it, it's yours. And if you're honest, your life doesn't look anything different from somebody who doesn't profess Christ, from somebody who's an atheist or an agnostic. You walk the same road, you've got the same language, you make the same decisions, it's the same. And the Spirit of God this morning saying, come back. There's good news for you. God always welcomes back the repentant sinner. But please, please don't come back just to get out of bondage. Come back to be in relationship with your father. Come back to say, I don't want to spend one more day apart from my father. And my question for you would be, are you ready for things to change? Are you ready for God to knock down some idols, to take some things that are destructive out of your life, to put in some things that are life-giving. I believe this morning can be the morning of change where this downward spiral turns into an upward spiral. So I'm gonna ask in just a moment as well that you would raise your hand and we'll say a prayer with both parties, with both groups. Let's pray together.